eyes waiting, started to wonder. Metamorphosis, loss of who you thought you is. When your kid can't find the language, help them find the lyrics. Listen to the Sound It Out album and get tips and tools to start a conversation at sounditouttogether.org. Brought to you by Ad Council and Pivotal Ventures. KPFT Artist Profile, Marina Rocks. Close your eyes. Just rest your eyes in sleepy hollow. There's a safe place. Hello, I'm Marina Rocks. I'm so glad uh, KPFT is still a part of the Houston music scene. It has meant a lot to independents like me. They always have time to interview independents and encourage you and support your shows, play your music. Before and after that, they're always playing great music. We're so glad to see they're still with us and still thriving and a big part of the Houston music scene and the Texas music scene. So uh, rock on KPFT Houston. Looking out a dirty old window Down below the cars in the city go rushing by I sit here growing up alone in a... and I wonder why Here on 90.1 FM KPFT Pacifica Radio. This, as always, is a discussion on our children, public policy, and how we as a city and community do when it comes to taking care of all of our kids. Growing Up in America is a production of Children at Risk, the voice of Texas's children, a nonprofit dedicated to research public policy, law, and collaborative action on behalf of Texas youth. Every week, we fill these same 60 action-packed minutes with lively discussion on the children of Texas with experts across the state. Of course, we'll have our regular segments like Thumbs Up, Thumbs Down, and Data of the Day. And for those of you who know how to play the game, the teaser number this week is 930. If you have a guess as to what 930 represents... As always, call 713-526-5738, press 2, and submit your guess. Claire, do you have a guess? Um, I I never do. Let me think. I 930 children who read the Hunger Games this week. That is almost (laughs) certainly wrong. That is such a bad guess. Can we prove it's wrong? That's all right. Claire, who do we have (laughs) joining us today? Who do we have joining us? We have a few guests. Denise Myers from Three Strands. We have John Robinson from the Houston Area Urban League. Dr. Christopher Koletsky from Mental Health in Schools. And then Krista Kessler from Community Outreach, or the Community Outreach Specialist for Catholic Charities. Well, we hope y'all will stick around for all of those awesome interviews. If you don't, for any reason, I have to assume only an, em- an emergency would tear you away from growing up <laughs> in America. And that is it. Um, you know, it's all online, but we, we hope you stick around. With that, it's time for Thumbs Up, Thumbs Down. It's dramatic pause for the music. The pause We're was not just saying. music. Claire, why don't you sing for us the song know. you're expecting? To hear at the eras, your first surprise song, guys. Oh, there it is. This is my surprise song. That would be crazy. All right, Claire, you're a former STEM teacher. And today's thumbs up, thumbs down. Homework. Be honest. How much homework did you give? None. But my school, no one gave homework. No one did. But I also started during COVID. So it was kind of a kick in the mud to try to keep giving homework when it was originally just trying to engage students to begin with. And so I'm not sure what the precedent was pre-COVID, but post-COVID it really became uh, homework was makeup work because of just how behind the students were becoming. In an ideal scenario... Would I do give you, homework? Yeah, would you have given homework? Do you feel like you, like, were you almost sad that your students were in a position where, like, they you couldn't engage. engage them at home in that way? Or do you think it was a good thing? Yeah, I think I, 
would have loved the idea of a flipped classroom. I know some of my friends did it to where at home they had more of a lesson in class was more time for activity, explanation, reiteration. That was really fun when it works and when the class is all involved. Um, it just depends. I mean, if I have a class that consistently is not doing it, I'd want to hold them accountable, accountable, but at the same time, not harsh their grade because of um, essentially busy work if it's something that we can handle in class. I will say if I was an English teacher, I'd for sure make it something fun, like read this weekend a book you enjoy or an hour every night of just reading or doing something you enjoy. That's still learning. It's fun homework. That's fair. I feel like coming from, in a way... A different lens as someone who was, I've not been a teacher, I was only once a student, um, at a very competitive school where the teachers would brag about like how much homework they would give us. Oh, so correct. whenever we had like, yeah, the parent night, you know, our parents would go and each teacher would be like, your child's going to have two hours of homework a night in my class. But is that a flex if well, they're just doing right. it for completion? Well, it wasn't for completion. Well, I mean, like they could just look oh. it up and their goal, student's goal is to get it done. Yeah. Are they, their goal is not to sit and learn all the time. Well, again, though, I mean, like this, that wasn't normally the case. Like you just had to do it. Right. And so my parents would always come home and be like, your teacher just told, like, if I look at all of your teachers, they're saying you're going to have like 10 to 12 hours of homework. And I was like, right. That's a lot of hours. Yeah, right. That's more hours than I have. And I feel like it just kind of enforced, like, it, it made it hard to join the workforce and like have boundaries. Correct. And involvement. Uh, a lot of my students, too. The reason why it was when I tried to even do homework in a normal classroom setting, um, they would have after school programs, they would have sports. Mm -hmm. So they weren't even home. The last bus, I think, ran at 5, 530. But they could not get home until seven if the bus was the last stop. Well, yeah. for them. Or like I had friends who did, you know, competitive sports, which ultimately like got them into college or got them really awesome scholarships. But that meant that like, they weren't home until 10 p.m. on a weekday or their whole weekend where they would give us more homework because hypothetically we had more time was Correct. taken up pursuing that sport, which ended up being like equally as valuable to their higher education. So I have a hard time with homework. I don't want to say like thumbs down to any homework because I do I think, think purposeful. Yeah, purposeful I think work. it's something that we like, at least in my experience, was like a constant, like you're always going to leave class with something to do. And I think that like, we didn't always need to do that. Right. But I do think there are times like with English, like it would have made zero sense for us to all just spend hours sitting in a classroom and reading the books, the book. right. but like we needed to do reading. So I don't know. I feel like it should be a little more complicated, but if y'all have strong feelings about homework, call in to 713-526-5738 and let us know. I know. I don't think I have a final answer. Oh I think gosh. I'm thumbs up when it's purposeful. More thumbs up for tutorials and mm. I'll tutoring. I'll say I'm thumbs down. Our studio team agrees. I think I'm thumbs down in the current way we think of homework. It's just like an expected part of like students every day. Correct. But More I would be work. open to someone like explaining to me a, a framework in which it was a little more yeah purposeful Engaging. or intentional and not super boring and making i don't know if you cried with your dad at the kitchen table over oh your math he would dust off the textbook from 1984 oh, to give me the physics lesson we're both like they're realtors <laughs> they don't know how, but like there we were fighting for our lives my dad is indeed an engineer and it would take an hour i was sitting there building the like physics models with my parents who are realtors trying to like do it with me <laughs> and we were all just like i had to make a guitar that almost broke me down to my simplest and you always and forget you until the night of You're oh like, my god mom, yeah mom i, I need a shoebox some guitar strings <laughs> yeah, and the like, most random plywood <laughs> um thank you yeah i found that in my closet the other day like my my parents house <laughs> and i was so it. triggered all right so i think we are Split on homework, but would love to hear what y'all have to say. Otherwise, I think we Ready could move on guest. to our first guest. All right. We, after it's that movie very dramatic... <laughs> audio transition we are so excited to welcome denise the texas state director for three strands global denise how are you i am doing well how are you doing we're good. We are excited to hear what you have to say we had um members of your team last week and we want to continue the conversation about three strands global absolutely i think first not 
I'm going to say all of our listeners listen every week. But in case they don't. And we have hundreds every week that join us. All of them. Denise, could you give us just an overview of what kind of Three Strands mission is and how you all go about that? Absolutely. So, um, you know, our mission is combating human trafficking. We have a vision of a world um, free of human trafficking. And we have a multitude of programs um, across the nation, actually. Um, I'm really excited today to explain uh, the programs that we have here in Texas and the impact that they're truly making. Yeah. I know last week with Gordon, we talked a little bit about the K-12 intersection and just making sure that both students and educators, leaders in schools are engaged and informed. Can you revisit and kind of expand on that program, the PROTECT program? Absolutely. You know, one of the things I love so much about the PROTECT program is it's a full comprehensive program for school communities. It's not just the curriculum and it's not just training the school staff. It's actually um, four components. We start um, working with the school districts on their human trafficking reporting protocol um, because we understand that the primary objective of the program is prevention, but a direct result is going to be um, victim identification. And so ensuring that those school districts have um, the human trafficking reporting protocol in place, that there would be a um, coordinated and agreed-upon response to um, those students that come forward as a result of the curriculum. So that's our first step in the program. Our second is training the school staff, you know, providing um, we, we have uh, we 101, 102, and 103 um, for our school staff. And what we say is truly everybody from your bus school driver to your cafeteria worker um, to your teachers in the classrooms and your administrators, they should all have the ability um, to recognize, identify, and respond in a complex trauma manner um, to situations in the classroom, whether that's a student that, that is coming forward um, because the curriculum has been presented and they've had that aha moment, this is happening to me or this is happening to someone I know. Mm-hmm. So they need um, to, to be able to understand how, uh, what the next steps are, um, so that uh, at the end of the day, you know, you can have the best possible results. And then, and um, third, the education, the curriculum. Mm-hmm. It's K through 12. It's, um, it's TEKS aligned. It is research-based. It, um, it's survivor-informed uh, through a, a series of different lectures and videos and role plays and hands-on activities. Um, we're giving students the ability to learn um, different um, tools and techniques that are going to overcome their lack of knowledge about how traffickers and predators operate and the use of traffic uh, technology um, to lure the victims. And so I will say that the curriculum covers both sex trafficking and labor trafficking. Um, The curriculum uh, focuses on self-awareness, on self-management, social awareness, um, and relationship skills. And not just human trafficking prevention, um, but students will learn additionally about uh, healthy relationships and personal safety and different supportive resources. But then the last and really um, a really important component of it is the data. Mm -hmm. We have to have a metric to ensure that um, our students are, in fact, learning, that the objectives are being met, that we're increasing their protective factors. Um, and so we have data. We do pre and post surveys, um, both for uh, the teachers and education staff that we train, and then uh, the children, the students in the classroom. Yeah. Uh, I know you mentioned um, some barriers SB9 created, and I'm just thinking of even when you first uh-huh. approach the protocols, what are from either SB9 or just when you go into a school, the barriers and the roadblocks you see in the redesigning of their safety plan? Well, so I I don't necessarily see barriers in designing the safety plan. That's really just a coordinated effort of stakeholders within the community coming together to make sure that the the right people are being called when you have that outcry or you have a suspected um, student that is being trafficked or exploited. 
But I will say barriers to providing the program now within the classrooms is um, SB 9 as of fall of 22 now um, mandates that we have active parent consent. Mm-hmm. And so SB 9 um you know, has a, a lot of things in place that I applaud and I think are best practices. And we've, we've always gone down that road as far as, you know, the curriculum being reviewed by the school health advisory council, um, the curriculum uh, being provided to the school board for review. Uh, it also um, asks that the curriculum is available to parents. And I think absolutely the parents should see right. um, what what is being taught to the children. But where there's an issue is with that active parent consent. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at the statistics of children that are abused or children that are trafficked, um, familial, um, you'll see that that right there has given us one more blockade to reaching that child. Because as I said, you know, our main objective is prevention. We want to prevent the crime before it happens. But we know a direct result of the prevention education in the classroom is going to be victim identification. And so when you're talking about an overtaxed school system, that's one more thing that they are now going to have to keep track of is having um, active parent consent for every child to have a program provided to them, as opposed to passive consent, which is what has been done prior, which is where, yes, absolutely, the parent could opt out. Have you guys seen an impact if it started fall 22 in your um, ability to offer or the students who are the number of students who are receiving your programs this year? So I will say, you know, Protect is fairly new to the Texas landscape. Um, It is uh, within six states. Um, It came to Texas actually in 2020, right when COVID hit. What a time. Um, (laughs) I know, right? Um, and so it was first brought here by um, the Office of the Governor's Child Sex Trafficking Team, uh, the, their then director, Andrea Sparks. And so we're just a couple years in. Um, so I can't, you know, really I can't necessarily say that there's been a decrease. It's, there's already so many, you know, um, obstacles and barriers that you have to overcome with school districts to provide the curriculum right. because let's Let's be honest, you know, our, our school systems are overtaxed. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but you know, giving them the opportunity, um, it, it's five modules. You know, there's K through three, four through six, seventh and eighth, ninth and tenth, eleventh and twelfth. So giving them the opportunity to choose um, where that curriculum um which classroom, because it is teaks aligned as well, and what um, which period it's being used in, I think helps. But no, not not necessarily. We can't say that we've we've seen a decrease, but we have um, we have had to um, really work with the school districts. Yeah, I know you sent over and. We reviewed the Fort Worth ISD, spoke a little bit on it. And I remember one of the staff members said they may have known that their elementary or middle students were vulnerable um, and they wanted to reach out, but they just didn't know how to connect or what exactly they were going through. What are ways in training staff for talking to parents that they can see these signs or talk to their children, even outside of the curriculum at home? So, you know, I, I, I love that question, um, you know, because we know that there are five ways that we can um, prevent exploitation. One is strong parents and caregivers, um, giving our parents and caregivers different ways and solutions that, that they can build uh, trusting relationships within their own family units um, and giving them, we, we have a parent and caregiver program that, that helps um, walk the parents and caregivers through those conversations at home. We know that um, having uh, children having strong relationships um, and social support and, and stable and positive relationships within the people and the community is, is a way to prevent exploitation. Um, we know that, uh, you know, parents understanding how their children are developing and, and, then communicating to their kiddos uh, so that they have clear expectations for their behavior and, and consequences. We know that can um, increase, um, you know, it's a protective factor to prevent exploitation. 
Yeah, everything, ooh, everything y'all are doing, we're a little short for time, but we're definitely going to have to have three strands back on to speak with y'all. <laughs> Thank you so much, Denise, for calling in today. Yes, absolutely. Thank have you. a good one. Thank you. Uh-huh. We have so many guests that are so good. So many. And today is very youth focused or very children focused, which is perfect. So next up, we have John Robinson, who is the Director of Education and Youth Development at the Houston Area Urban League. Hey, John, how are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. How are you guys doing today? We are excited to hear about the work you are doing with the Urban League. So for those listening that might not have an idea, can you give a general scope of your work and the work at the League? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I am, of course, as you said, the Director of Education and Youth Development, and uh, we focus in on college and career-ready programs. We are affiliated with the National Urban League, and of course, our national banner uh, is called Project Ready. It's a college secondary access program where we are working with students in some identified campuses of HISD and Aldean ISD, where we provide college and career readiness mentoring programs, service learning projects. Uh, We work in a number of the elementary schools across the greater Houston area in terms of family and community engagement activities where the foundation of what we try to do begins with the idea that we believe every child deserves a chance to read and rise and Every one of our babies across the greater Houston deserves a chance to be great. And we realize that uh, that greatness will only come from us making sure that every single baby in the city can read. Uh, Reading, of course, as you know, is the key to everything. And when our babies can't read, there's not a whole lot of anything else they can do. And so our focus from pre-K to college Mm -hmm. is to make sure that every child uh, is able to read and to really comprehend and critically think about what they read and all of the other components that go along with uh, being literate. And so uh, the majority of the work that we do here in the Education and Youth Development Department is getting kids ready for college and careers from pre-K awesome. to college. We believe that college-bound capacity begins at conception. And so we try to take away the idea that you hear a lot of people talk about birth to third grade, birth to third third grade. Well, I disagree with that. I'm one of the experts across the city because I also work for Scholastic Books as one of their Mm. national facilitators and keynotes. And so I talk as I go across the country, as I do here in the greater Houston area, about college-bound capacity beginning at conception. Uh, we we miss that window opportun- of opportunity when we don't get parents, young parents who are having babies and young parents who are contemplating having kids to understand that college-bound capacity begins in mommy's tummy where you can read to that baby and talk to that baby and hug and love that baby even in mother's womb during the pregnancy. And that baby comes out ready to go. And so... Uh, that's what we believe here at the Houston Area Urban League. And every chance, ha- every child having a chance to be great is dependent upon we making sure that they have a chance to read and rise. I think that's awesome. And I just, I hear in how you describe your work, I think a really beautiful, like positive growth mindset of it's not about, you know, preventing X outcome or, or undoing something, but it's really about building strong people and and that idea of you know their just capacity to be great I think is already so inspiring I'd love to hear a little bit about I think people talk in the literacy space and in you know all of this about the effect of like social media and everybody being online and like that either some people think it's kind of a positive some people see it as like a huge negative because you know kids aren't reading because they're you know scrolling through whatever I'd love to hear about how you guys kind of approach the use of technology, if it's something that's helpful in your um, education programs, or if you really are seeing that, like, children are spending a lot of time scrolling now, and so that's hurting their, you know, literacy outcomes. Well, I I think everything has its pros and cons, uh, but everything is based on how you present it and what you offer in in terms of the content around how you present uh, anything, whether it be positive or negative. And so we use uh, technology as a tool. Uh, one of the things that I do with my parent trainings with our kids when we go to the schools is I talk to them about video games and understanding 
uh, them playing video games all the time. One of the questions I ask them is about the cheat code. I don't know if you've ever heard of the cheat code in video games, mm-hmm. but there is what they call a cheat code. And if you know that cheat code, you're cheating, actually. And if you know that code, every time you play, you can beat your opponent's brains out because you have the code. Well, I convince our kids that they have a cheat code available to them, which is their cell phone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we use the, the cell phone and the iPad and the and all of the other components of technology uh, as a cheat code. Anything you put into that bar, you can hit a button and it'll give you a response. If you need to find a word, the right word to use in a sentence, if you need to uh, find uh, anything with reference to your research around something that you've already read and you want to dig in and research to to learn more about it and to expand your content knowledge around a different area, use your cheat code. So we talk in terms of social, the social media platform, the concepts, uh, because we're not going to talk kids out of using it. So we need to talk to them about how best to use it to benefit them when it comes to their educational needs. We deal with a lot of education, social, and emotional development, which we know are the three components uh, that make up what young people need to really have. It's not just about one or the other. All three are linked together. And so when we talk to kids about academic, social, and emotional development, we talk a lot about social media, how to use social media to their advantage, uh, and we don't we don't get into discussions about where all they go and what they do. We just try to talk positive about how to use social media correctly, how to use technology correctly, and we've had lots of success with that. John, I wanted to ask, it's kind of a twofold question, but as a former educator and still connected to a lot, especially in high school, you want your students to succeed and have this opportunity, connect with families. Where do you see, or for a teacher, for an educator, leader, trying to connect the students and engage the student with opportunity, the gap in kind of taking a student maybe out of an apathetic mindset of post-grad plans um, and directing them and trying to get out what their passion is and lead them. And then moreover, I know you kind of work with them through 19 to 25 years old. Where do you see students lacking support in that age group that teachers in high school could prepare them for now? Yeah, well, we've got to allow young people to tell us Mm -hmm. where their interests are. Uh, You know, a lot of the work that we're doing uh, in schools from pre-K to to 12th grade and from that point on to college, they get to tell you what they want. But in those those grades in our public system, our private systems from pre-K to 12th grade, uh, everything is kind of set. But there are periods of time where teachers who are really interested in Uh, trying to give kids directives that fits where they want to go, connect with kids about where they want to go. We've got to have open spaces in our uh, educational day where we talk to kids about where their real interests lie and what it is, what is it that they really want. We've got to direct them to the right kind of uh, content to read about with reference to what they want to do, Uh, especially with uh, the way the teaching field has has moved towards teaching towards a test and Correct. you know there's certain things that have to be done uh, teachers are not able to just do what they really know to do to it's not this reading writing and arithmetic anymore concept it's it's specific things that address a test that we have kids take uh, so many times they get to miss a lot of the other intricacies that they need to have along the educational journey uh, and so their continuum is cut off with many of the pieces that they get they don't get to have so i think that what we have to do is is open our ears allow kids to uh have a voice in their uh their educational uh learning tell us where they want to go connect what we have to do with them to where they want to go and that's the real key how do you take what it is that they want and implement it into what you have to give them there are ways to do that. We do it here every day. When we find out where our kids are, because we make our kids give us uh, a, a what we call an IDCP, an, an, an educational development plan about what it is that you want to do. We take that plan and design our plan based off of their plan. Yeah. And we put in there what we know that they've got to have 
and include what they really want at the same time. And I think that's where education has to go. We've got to be able to let our kids have a voice in where they want to go and what they want to do. And then we design what is mandatory for them with those pieces implemented into it. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, John. We loved having you on, and we can't wait to keep connecting with the Houston Area Urban League. And thank you for the work you're doing. You're very welcome. Have a good one. It's time for data of the day. Oh, we heard a sneak peek of we Beyonce. A sneak peek of Houston Beyonce. Houston native. A sway. Here she is. Hi, Layla. Layla, are you there? I'm here. Oh, there you are. Yes, we can. She was taking in your singing. I just, I was expecting a little more applause, so I assumed you weren't there. Um, (laughs) She she was speechless. You could say. I I I could tell. I was rooting for you. I just must not come through. I'm in my own (laughs) era's tour. The praise must have just been lost in the mail. But Leila, we have our number of the day, 930. I had probably the worst guest in the history of the show. But we're excited to hear what the number actually means. I want to hear your terrible guess. I don't know what it came from, but I said 930 children have read The Hunger Games this week. (laughs) I've been fed a lot of Hunger Games news this week. I don't know why. Um, But in the case that is the number... Can you tell us the correct, correct statistic? So I feel like you may have had a better shot at your guess. The number is 930,000. Um, a lot of children reading the Hunger Games. That's so many. <laughs> Loads. Maybe too many. Um, so 930,000 is actually uh, the number of uninsured children in the state of Texas. Wow. Wow. And That's what does that look like percentage-wise? So, um, statewide, that's about 11% of all children are uninsured. Um, and in Harris County specifically, it's, uh, it's even worse. About 15% or 178,000 children in Harris County are uninsured. And compared to the national rate, it's only about 5% nationally. So, Texas definitely is struggling in that area. Yeah, and just thinking it's 5%, but we hold 10% of all of America's children. So, Having them predominantly or at least 15% uninsured is in Harris County, 11 statewide, is scary and bad. So what yeah. – oh, go ahead. It's scary mm. and bad. Yeah. Well, no, it's it's jarring. It really is. But what – do we rank a certain – I know 5%, but I are we 50, 50th or are we higher up compared to other states? So Texas has the largest number of uninsured children in the country. So Texas is – 50 out of 50 in terms of um, rate of insured families and children. Um, So, yeah, Texas definitely has a ways to go. And also, Texas is one of um, a couple handfuls of states that um, voted against Medicaid expansion. Could you tell us a little more? I feel like we we talk a lot about not accepting Medicaid expansion, but I don't know if everyone, like, really understands what that means. Like, what... What would be possible? What are we turning down in terms of like impact by not taking the expansion? So across the 12 states who have yet to implement Medicaid expansion, that would mean 3.7 million people would get health care coverage across all 12 of those states, um, with a heavy share of them, of course, being in Texas. Um, So we're talking a huge number of people who if Medicaid expansion were to take in those 12 states, including Texas, who would gain health care coverage, I mean, effectively, immediately. Um, Of course, this number does include South Dakota, which has adopted Medicaid expansion, but they have yet to implement it. Mm -hmm. That is not good. No, not at all. I know we have some numbers about 2021 in Harris County. Can you leave us with that just to still kind of express the magnitude of this issue. Yeah, so in 2021, Harris County has 633,138, well, that was in 2021, children enrolled in Medicaid and 43,810 enrolled in CHIP. Um, 
So definitely, you know, public programs to support health insurance coverage are going away and reaching people, but we need a long, longer way to go. Layla, our last kind of question, or could you leave us with maybe an actionable step that people at home could take to try to help expand health coverage in Harris County? I mean, I would say, I would say any advocacy measures to adopt Medicaid expansion would be huge, including, you know, calling your local representatives, um, doing what you can to express your support of Medicaid expansion. Um, It's, it's good for everybody. We'll take that. Get involved and demand Medicaid <laughs> expansion. Thanks so much, Layla. Sure th- oh, she's gone. Another dramatic pause before the music. I wonder if we'll get another movie trailer for our next guest. Maybe not. Sorry. Oh, oh, there we go. We don't get a movie trailer, but we get the Beatles. are so excited for our next guest. It is Dr. Christopher, is it Kulesa? Kulesa? Kulesa, perfect. Oh, awesome. Look at you. I know. It's the teacher in me. You have to pronounce all the last <laughs> names right first try. Dr. Kuleska, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? And you can call me Chris. That's fine. Okay, Chris. Chris is joining us from Mental Health in Schools. We have a few things to talk about. I don't know if you've been listening, but it's been very education-centric today, as I feel like all conversations lead back to our schools. Yes, absolutely. And thank you so much for having me on today. I really appreciate it. Of course. Can you first just give us an overall scope of your organization, your work, and the impact in K-12 spaces? Sure, I would be happy to. So I'm a part of the Child Health Policy Program, which is within the Center for Health and Biosciences at the Baker Institute for Public Policy at Rice. So what we do is we conduct original research looking at the root causes of adverse health outcomes in children, but specifically looking at interventions and policy outcomes. So we're looking at different policies that can help address uh, health specifically. And then my role is to look at the K-12 education side. So I work with various school districts looking at um, different ways for which that we can improve academic performance by addressing the social determinants of health. So those non-medical influencers of health outcomes with the idea being that once you do that, then academic outcomes will improve. Yeah, and I know we've, especially since the pandemic, have had a huge spotlight, not on issues that did not exist, but were exacerbated or just continue to increase, especially with access to mental health. But then in the turnaround, like you said, those determinants that have an impact on students before they even enter a classroom. So can you give us some insight on the work with Handle with Care program? Sure, I'd be happy to. So just giving a a bit of a background, right now Texas ranks 50th um, in access to mental health per Mental Health America, and we're ranked 41 overall for youth mental health. So what we have after the pandemic, we saw, of course, a dramatic increase in major depression. Per uh, Texas Care for Children, we saw a 73% increase uh, between, in kids between 11 and 17 between 2015 and 2022. And on top of that, we also see that 98% of school districts fail to meet the Texas education's recommendation for having one counselor for every 250 students. So mm-hmm. teachers and administrators are really, really pressed to meet the needs of uh, mental health needs of students. So with that being said, um, there is a, uh, a program called um, Handle with Care that we are working with the Minaret Foundation and several other uh, community collaborators to um, potentially make as a statewide program. And this is something that's been rolled out 
on a uh, trial basis in HISD and also Galena Park um, uh, established the program several years ago. So with this, uh, the idea is that, of course, um, students will, um, uh, students um, tackle their uh, backgrounds in very different ways. Of course, students react very differently to trauma. Mm-hmm. So the idea behind Handle with Care is that if a police officer identifies that there was a child that had just gone through a traumatic experience, they send a message to the school with the child's uh, name, class, a message that just says Handle with Care. Mm-hmm. And the idea with that is if, for example, the child um, is... Uh, behaving differently, this allows teachers to have a bit of a different perspective or perspective as to why the student is behaving the way that they are. So in case that there is um, either some incident in the classroom or within the school, that the teachers would then be able to connect the student to mental health services as opposed to potentially going through disciplinary action. Yeah, I think that just in and of itself makes a lot of sense. And I'm sure as a, you know, I as an educator would appreciate that kind of context when, you know, you don't have time to chat with every student or to know their full story. I'd love to hear, you know, at least in the Houston area, what are some of the, you know, common things that are, you know, that are driving, you know, students to end up with this kind of label? Like what are students facing? What kind of challenges are we talking about when we're talking about, you know, the kind of things that might impact school performance or behavior in the classroom? Right, of course. So, you know, when we're talking about Harris County, we're talking about an incredibly diverse community, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and um, we're talking about a uh, community that, or a school district that has um, very different groups in terms of income levels and opportunities. So what we've been doing at the Baker Institute in, in the past, we've done community needs assessments where we've looked at um, topics like food insecurity and housing insecurity. And what we find is particularly um, in, in several different schools across uh, Harris County is that the amount of food insecurity and housing insecurity is significantly higher than what you would find um, students reporting across the United States. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you know, students that don't have access to food or don't have access to regular housing are going to be impacted academically. Um, mm-hmm. they're, they're not going to be able um, to uh, interact with their teachers or be able to interact with the school as uh, students that have their basic needs met. Mm-hmm. What sort of collaborations do you see or even institute in districts, maybe Galena Park I know was mentioned, um, to help these students connect to the resources? So there is one model that is being tried out in um, in uh, Harris County. Mm-hmm. It's the full service community school model. Okay. So the the idea behind this is is that you're meeting the needs of the whole child and you're creating relationships with community stakeholders, parents, teachers, and administrators to make the school a a, a community hub where students and parents are then able to access um, various services that will be provided or there would be assistance in their provision from various community stakeholders. Um, So as of now, um, there are five schools in HISD that are, um, that are using this model and they're, um, there's also Austin School District recently received a grant from the federal government, as well as a couple of others. And so far, um, it has been uh, pretty promising in terms of the results. And can you just quickly, is this a hub as in uh, they have resources on campus, they have a community resource um, full-time staff member? How are they, what is the model that they have that other schools could replicate? Right. So it's services that are directly on campus. Okay. Um, so, 
for example, um, being able to bring uh, food home for your family or being able to access clothing. Um, also, uh, being able to have certain access to medical care. But then, two, the full-service community school model also creates partnerships for the academic day, so new mentorship programs, different reading programs. So, again, it's really looking at the idea that you, you have to address the, um, everything that can go into academia in terms of the social influences that impact academic performance. Yeah, I mean, that all makes sense, and I think um, that was very informational. Thank you, Dr. Cool. Dr. Chris. Um, we hope to Thank have you, you back so again. Have a good one. Thank you. We're happy to come back. The stars at night are big and bright. Deep in the heart of Texas. Well, if you think we're slowing down, you'd be wrong. Our next guest brings just as much... Um, expertise and knowledge to the table. I'm so excited to introduce Krista Kessler, the Community Outreach Specialist for Catholic Charities. Krista, how are you? Hi, I'm doing well. Um, so I'm actually the Outreach Specialist just specifically for the St. Jerome Emiliani Foster Care Program at Catholic Charities. Oh, that's good to know. Very cool. <laughs> um, to that end, I'd love to hear just a little bit um, about what I know Catholic Charities does a lot. So maybe yeah. the briefest overview and then kind of specifically what that program does. Yes. Yeah, so we have many different programs. Um, they are all specifically to help people in need. We mainly work with immigrants and children. And my program specifically is working with refugee minors who've come to the U.S. unaccompanied. So it is um, just a full-service foster care program with many different staff members who offer full-rounded support for them, and we basically are finding foster parents to license with us so that we can um, get our referrals from the Office of Refugee Resettlement and then place them in safe and loving homes. That is awesome and incredible. How is it in the system of foster parents connecting to um, children for care? Is it hard? Are there roadblocks, or is it a pretty smooth process? It's just the need for parents in the system? Sure. Um, I mean, it's, it's different than domestic because our youth are, you know, not coming from CPS. There's mm -hmm. no affiliation. Everything is strictly from the Office of Refugee Resettlement. And it can be difficult to bring on parents, specifically because a lot of people are wanting babies or smaller children. Um, and then in addition to that, a lot of people really are looking for, as they put it, youth that are already in the system, um, just wanting kids that have grown up here that aren't coming over with, you know, a language barrier or, um, you know, trauma coming from war-torn countries and things of that nature. Yeah, and I think it might be unique to the program. I'm not sure if it's been replicated, but after your youth graduate out the system or turn 18, mm -hmm. then the program will continue to almost keep them if they choose to provide support uh, will provide support to them, but how are they, are they able to connect with new youth that go into the system and almost create a mentorship program through that as well? And have you seen those young adults want to stay and retain with your organization? <laughs> yes, uh, St. Jerome Emiliani. So we actually offer what's called the Supervised Independent Living Program. And so that is one benefit is that when they turn 18, they can choose if they want to stay with us or move out on their own. And so a lot of times, being that they're teenagers, you know, they want to be on their own. They're very independent. So they, they choose to leave, but then they come back. <laughs> so we do take them back for a period of 90 days and allow them to return. Um, and we teach them independent living skills classes where they take a test and have to basically prove that they are ready to be, you know, adults out on their own. And so if they're able to pass that test, then they would move into our supervised independent living program, and they can stay in that program until they turn 21. And so at that point, they would still be receiving case management services from us and um, just additional help. And so it's very beneficial for them, and they can kind of maintain friendships. A lot of them will um, move into an apartment with another youth from the program. And so they can kind of, like, continue to help each other as well 
And then we are trying to start like a mentorship program within this from our aged out youth that have, you know, left the FAL program and Mm -hmm. graduated onward. Um, It's just still underway at the moment. So, yeah, I'd love to hear, um, I think talking about, you know, unaccompanied youth entering, um, you know, a foster system, there are maybe the obstacles that a lot of us can imagine in terms of, you know, a language barrier or trauma. I'd love to hear, I'm sure there are other obstacles that maybe aren't as common, but can be just as impactful, you know, either, you know, nuance to those issues or other, you know, obstacles that surprised you that you, you, that the youth are running into and that maybe people aren't always thinking about when they're trying to think of how to like support or the experience of, of these young people. Sure. Um, I would say that it is interesting when a lot of times with new foster parents, when we're kind of preparing them for what to expect, I think they don't get down to the very basic nature of the fact that, like, a lot of these youth have never been to a traditional, they've never been to a traditional school before. They've never seen a refrigerator, a shower, like, just even the most simple items they've not been exposed to. So it's really important to just make them feel as comfortable as possible in the home and just kind of do like a home tour, you know, walking them through and showing them how every little thing works and just not assuming that they know because it's very different from domestic foster care in that way that like, you know, even if they've been here in a shelter or a refugee camp, it's a different setup than like in a house. So it's all very new to them and you just don't know exactly what kind of knowledge they have before they get to us. So it's important to kind of show them everything and and assume they don't know rather than assuming they do know. Yeah. Throughout the show, we've had a lot of K-12 driven conversation. And again, like the intersections of different supports that you can get from schools in the training or maybe just programmatically, do you have connections with schools um, to smoothly bring students that may have never been in one education system, but two, definitely not in America? Sure. Um, So we have an education coordinator who kind of facilitates all of that. So he works with enrolling them in the school and getting them into ESL programs. And, you know, one barrier that sometimes occurs is the fact that ESL programs are generally set up for Spanish speakers. Mm -hmm. But we see youth from all over the world. We have a lot of youth that come from countries in Africa. So they speak languages like Rohingya, you know, or Tigrinya. And so these are, you know, less common here. And it can be more difficult for them just to kind of have support. Um, And so, yeah, we lean heavily on him trying to help them with that. And then we also have volunteer tutors. And so they work very closely with our youth and helping them learn English when they first arrive here. Um, And then, you know, continue to work with them with other subjects as well. But it's always, you know just kind of interesting to see which youth are going to prosper more quickly and how things are going to go because yeah it is an all-new experience for them and um they can experience different things because of it you know some may be bullied just because of um, speaking differently you know having a thick accent or looking different you know having like a traditional style of dress so it's hard to kind of make sure that they're going to be able to maintain some consistency and be able to hold on to things from their home country, but also helping them kind of assimilate into ours and, you know, not, not allowing them to lose track of things from home, but also making sure that they're able to kind of fit in with everyone here as well. Right. And I, I know it's probably in the 50 plus hours of training, but I love that you mentioned making sure they don't lose the peace from their home country. Um, and as mm-hmm. I was saying in the training, I'm sure there's a piece of how the families can still have them integrated while also yes. celebrating and honoring their home and um, just keeping an, I don't know, an international approach at it. It's just all very cool. I know you mentioned the tutoring program, and I guess this can kind of be mm-hmm. a Catholic charities plug, but what are some other ways people can get involved if they're not necessarily able to be foster parents or maybe with organizations mm-hmm. you partner with to help those get integrated into communities? Sure. Um, and, I mean, there are a lot of organizations around town that help with refugees, which is wonderful. <laughs> I am myself trying to find them all and, you know, form partnerships with them. Um, but there, there are some that specifically do, like, mentoring and, um, yeah, along more along that side of things and um, 
for us, yeah, we definitely need more tutors. So that's usually what I recommend to people if they don't want to be a full-on foster parent. We also have the option for um, respite care where they would just be a foster parent, you know, temporarily. Sometimes it's just a weekend, you know, short-term um, and sporadic. And so that kind of helps people if they're on the fence about it and just kind of want to try it out. Um, some people start as respite and then move into full-time and then others just stay respite, which is also fine um, because we always need that. But, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different resources out there and um, always happy to share if anyone's interested or looking for something specific. <laughs> Yeah, and you are actually, not to transition, we are going mm -hmm. to keep connected, and we're glad we got to highlight the work y'all are doing. Um, but since you are our final guest, we have a couple fun questions. We always give our final <laughs> guest if you are ready for those. Sure. All right, first, rapid fire, fun, five questions. What was your favorite book to read or be read as a child? Oh, that's hard for me because I'm an English major, creative writing minor, so I have many. <laughs> a series, maybe? You can <laughs> cheat and author? To, to be read to, like from my parents? Like yeah, a, like a I mean, either like if you had a, a kid's book, you, I think it's like when you or were like young. like a library young. book yeah. in kindergarten It can you be a book you love to have read to you or one you love to read. I loved Goodnight Moon. Oh, a, a classic. classic. Um, you know, classic. <laughs> See, like that's an English major. Uh, and also where the wild things are. I, I love mean, and book. I'll say this, I, I was also a, a preschool teacher in my 20s, and um, there's a lot of really good books out nowadays for kids, too. I really love Llama Llama Red Pajama. I have that That's one memorized one. from reading it. To my <laughs> That's a good one. You can get but, uh, I'm a big stickler for the classics, too, though. <laughs> awesome. The next one is, what did you want to be growing up? Uh, a writer and an illustrator. I wanted to write my own books and then draw the pictures for them. Well, I look forward to your children's books coming yeah. out and reading them to my kiddos one day. All right. Next question. When they make the Krista Kessler movie, who would play you? Oh, gosh. Okay. So people always say that I look like Allison Hannigan, like oh. circa the Buffy years. Yeah. Circa how I met your mother. <laughs> <laughs> because whenever we both have red hair, we look kind of alike. We have similar dimples and like a round face. But, yeah, oh, okay. I don't know. I think we both look pretty different as we've aged. I Maybe think she'll be down to do it. <laughs> I, I, we've got her on the line. Allison? Yeah, we'll call her. Um, <laughs> and then one more. Do you have a comfort movie, TV show, or book? I feel like it might be book. I'm guessing it's a book. <laughs> oh, uh, I have so many. Uh, my, my comfort TV show would be Gilmore Girls, for sure. Always That's on repeat. a great answer. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, thank you so um, much. Oh, do you have another one? Go ahead. Give no, us a I was trying to think of a of a book, but I'm kind of like maybe it's Lama Lama. I don't think I have a comfort <laughs> book. <laughs> yeah, I, I usually read new books. I don't reread books very often, so I'm the same way. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Well. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for calling in, and again, thank you, thank you so much for the work y'all are doing for youth in Texas. Yes, thank you so much, and you'll have a good rest of your day. You same too. to you. Well, that wraps it up for this Wednesday. Thank you so much for listening to Growing Up in America. We do this every Wednesday. For 1 to 2 p.m. For children. For children. <laughs> and independent and she was familiar with her neighborhood but one day she stopped at the stop sign for much longer than usual she wasn't even really sure where she was at it's important for you to talk to someone about it i felt so much better after my son told me mom we'll figure it out when something feels different it could be alzheimer's now is the time to talk visit alz.org our stories to learn more a message from the alzheimer's association and the ad council 
Tune in Saturdays at 6 a.m. for the Inner Kid Radio Hour, and you might hear Woody Guthrie, Talking Heads, Mr. Rogers, I like the Beach Boys, Cab Calloway, Harry Hendrick, Louis Armstrong, or Tom T. Hall. Join us Saturdays, 6 a.m. KPFT. It's 90.1 KPFT. Time to check in with the Ronnie and Tom Show. I'm uh, trying to share a moment from my childhood, and these guys were just stomping all over. I was going to ask you, did you have a Batman utility belt? I had the yellow yeah, baby. Batman utility belt. I did, and uh, loved it. And matter of fact, I, I still have it. And uh, basically, yeah, you know those little airline bottles. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have uh, Jack 